everyone. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is an independent arts and music podcast, but really it's mostly music, which really music and arts are the same thing if you think about it, but whatever. I've been focusing lately a lot on musicians and uh, been thankfully booking a lot of people that I love. Today is King Khan, and that speaking of him, this that song that played in the show was Wait Till the Stars Burn from his new album, The Infinite Ones. That comes out the night before October, uh, Halloween, October 30th. 2020. Uh, this is a really great episode. I'm very excited that he did the show. Uh, we I messaged him a- on Instagram, and then we ended up going back and forth and talking about Black Panthers and John Sinclair. And so um, we had a, a lot in common, and we had a lot to talk about. Um, everything that we discuss, like his Global Solidarity Forever, Justice Insulin Initiative, his band camp, I'm putting. I'll put the links. All the links to all the stuff will be in the show notes. So please um, go to the show notes. Check out those things. Uh, it's a really great episode. I'm very proud to have him on the show. Um, and it was, you know, the man is on another plane, and I mean that in a good way. He's just he's tuned into the cosmos, and it comes out every pore of his body, and it's really exciting to listen to him talk. So uh, if and just real quick, if you enjoy King Khan and and his music, please check out some of my other guests that I've had on the show. I've had Wayne Kramer from the MC5. I've mentioned John Sinclair. Uh, John Sinclair's been on the show. I had David Pajo from uh, Slint and Tim Presley from White Fence. And I've got a bunch of great guests coming up in the future. So uh, go to my Instagram page, Conversations with Dwyer. You can you can uh, see past guests there or go to themattdwyer.com. That lists you to all things. And and it would be great if you told your friends about the show. If you like the show, be like, hey, friend, this guy talks to cool people. He's kind of square. He's kind of a square, but he talks to cool people. And, uh, if, you know, or you could go become a Patreon subscriber, patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. I think that's it. <laughs> I forgot my Patreon page. Go to my website, mattdwyer.com, and you can find it there. Um, I don't want to waste any more of your time. People come to my podcast to listen to who I talk to, not to listen to me talk. So here is my great conversation with King Khan. Your fucking library is gigantic. It's like, I, I was, <laughs> while I was researching you, I was discovered, like, I didn't know you did something with the black lips. I was like... Yeah, I produced, I produced half of the uh, Let It Bloom record, which I think is their best record. Um, that was that was back when they were still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> what hap- Why does that happen with like just artists in general? It seems like some, especially it seems to happen in comedy a lot. Once they get successful, they sort of lose the edge. They, lo- they lose the edge. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Do you, well, do you- I, I I kind of have this theory that the day that I won't be able to ride public transport is the day that I have to stop playing music. <laughs> <laughs> Like I, I, I enjoy public transport and I mean, I, you know, I get recognized in weird places, you know, like some of my, uh, the high school teachers of my kids were fans of mine, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. There's like strange moments where, uh, getting recognized actually kind of benefits you. Like, um, I remember, uh, I played a show in Berlin and my, uh, my daughters used to dance on stage, like at, at our shows, you know? And, uh, 
and my I guess my my youngest was must have been like twelve or something, and she was dancing on stage, and then her uh, her high school teacher was right in the front row. <laughs> and she got super, super shy. She was super shy and like ran behind the horn players. And uh, and then after the show, the teacher came up to me and he was like, "Oh man, I'm such a big fan." And he and then he was, "Bella's going to come in late tomorrow. Don't worry about it." <laughs> That's great. Uh, is does that? Yeah, change, it was cool. Change your dynamic with the teacher when they're fans. Do they get like nervous? <laughs> well, it's no. The the funny thing is that when they were in in elementary school, I told them specifically not to tell the teachers that I was King Khan because of you know all the racy pictures and you know all sorts of stuff that is on the internet. So um, then I remember uh, I remember this one instant where my my daughter uh, Bella was like. Uh, five years old or something and she was wearing this leather daddy hat from San Francisco <laughs> that um, that actually uh uh darren darren from supercharger gave, gave me the hat so it was a supercharger hat and she had like a leather jacket and she was walking around the house with these boots on and uh i was laughing and i told her i was like oh you're, you're dressed up like a rocker and she's like no i'm dressed up like a superstar not a secret <laughs> So she actually, in her mind, thought that I was like kind of escaping into the night and secretly singing soul music, you know, and, and I guess in a way I was, you know. <laughs> Does, yeah. Do you, when your kids were younger, because they're, they're out of the house now, right? Yes. One of them is kind of back and forth, but yeah, she's going to be out like soon. But yeah, but, but both of them are, are yeah, they're, they're, they're independent women. Did you try to hide that racy stuff from them? Because... Cause there's a lot of stuff. No, n- yeah. I'm interested. Not, not at all. Like we grew up, uh, you know what, you know why actually is uh, I met, uh, Robert Crumb's daughter, Sophie, uh, at a concert that we played in the South of France. And I think I must've been like 22. Sophie must've been like 20. And it really blew my mind that it was, is, uh, Robert Crumb's daughter, obviously. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we were, we were, uh, hanging out the whole time. And like, she was a volunteer at this festival. She was like, cleaning up broken glass at at the end of the show. And I was insisting on helping her. So I was like sweeping with her and like, (laughs) and just, uh, sweeping with her, not anything else. Uh, so we were, yeah, I was just like freaked out and I, and I asked her all these questions. And one of my questions was like, uh, I just had, you know, a child and I was like, did Robert Crumb hide his art from you when you were a kid? And she was like, no, like it was, it was everywhere in the house, you know? And like, so I kind of uh, followed sweet in the, in that philosophy. And, um, you know, uh, I've shared my humor, my music and everything with my kids. And, uh, I mean, I have, I, I have a, a, a toilet mouth, you know, my, my dad used to say that I had, that I had a black tongue, <laughs> which means like I, I, uh, in, in, in India, in India, that means, you know, you have, you can, you swear a lot and stuff. So, you know, we had a swear jar in the house that like I had to, Sometimes I would just put 20 bucks in there and have like a whole month of swearing, which would be fine. But, um, it was funny because at, when they're young, I mean, and my wife doesn't swear, you know, like, and she was, we gave them the option. Like they were, we were like, you can swear as much as you want, or you can be a lady like your mom and not swear, you know? And so, yeah. So I, I, I think, uh, the way, you know, the way to be with children is to be open about stuff, you know? And, uh, and let them ask as many questions as they want, you know, and as long as like our responsibility is basically just to make sure they they feel safe where they are, you know? And, um, I noticed that like one thing, for example, I did a lot when I, when they were 
really young, it was I'd, I'd, every night I would do a, a story, you know, a bedtime story where I, and I'd sing them songs, you know, Charlie Feathers songs and like uh, um, I would. But the stories were really important because I would make them up on the spot. And they were always about this uh, treasure hunter named Shank. And and he was kind of like a Hank Williams meets Indiana Jones. And he had like a, a pet dragon, uh, not a pet dragon, a partner dragon who was an ice dragon named Fruity. And uh, they used to fly everywhere. And what they would do is they would go to uh, tribes. They would find tr- indigenous tribes everywhere. And these indigenous tribes would have like a, a tr- like a golden banana or something like that. And they would have lost the treasure and then Shank, being a treasure hunter would go and find the treasure. And then every, every episode there would be like Shank would come home. I just right. They would celebrate uh, Shank and like the fact that he found the treasure and they had a big party at the end. So I would always do these stories and uh, the kids would interact the whole time, you know, like, like for example, the one thing they used to be really afraid of were underwater tunnels. So like sometimes I'd try to slip in an underwater tunnel and they they would be like putting the brakes <laughs> on the whole thing like no 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 underground tunnel no underground tunnel no underground water tunnel you know so um, but I you know I realized that in doing so I really taught my kids uh, how to tell a story you know and I feel like in this internet age and everything what we're not teaching the kids is to be able to tell a coherent story with a middle and end you know and and. That's something that you got to learn, you know, by doing when, as, as soon as you're capable of registering, you know, uh, as soon as your imagination is developed, you know, like, or developing. So, uh, I think that we, I'm, I'm so proud of my, my daughters, you know, they, they, um, they not only like had their own taste developed, you know, in when, by the time in, in, in they were in uh, elementary school, you know, they, they knew Hank Williams, they knew Bo, they knew Chuck, they knew Sun Ra, you know, and uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, you know, Screaming Lord Such was a really big uh, hit with them, you know, and we would be dancing around the house, you know, singing My Monster in Black Tights. <laughs> so, um, I, you know what, I, I mean, in, in, a, in a funny way, I feel like, you know, the things that I've heard about, like the way Aretha Franklin grew up, you know, in a church family, you know, uh, that was bathed in music. We, we were the, we were like that family also, but they were, they were given like every kind of music, you know, from the germs to like, you know, screaming Jay Hawkins to like Sun Ra and stuff. So, um, I think, it, and it became very natural for them to then want to pick up an instrument and, and, and learn stuff, you know? Yeah. So, and I think honestly, that is what has kept us a very strong family, you know, is that, that now, you know, they, they show me stuff, you know, that I've never seen, you know, old gospel songs, all this kind of, they'll come up. And so we, we when, when we hang out, I mean, listening to records and having the same experience, you know, so music was so, so much of a family bonding thing for me uh, as a teenager and, and now, you know, as a, as a, as an old dad. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about doing anything with, uh, Clutch is that what it was? The character was called, and because it sounds like you no, no, Shank, Shank. It's funny because I named him after a jail weapon. <laughs> <laughs> have you th- yeah. have you done anything with that? That seems like you could have an animated kids thing. Man, you know, I I've I've tried. Uh, I've I've had several ideas for animation stuff. I mean, uh, it's just a question of like you know the the powers that be uh, don't really care about supporting something that's actually good for you <laughs> you know like no but that's that's the truth yeah that's i'm not truth, disagreeing you know? it's like 
uh, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, occasionally there's I, I'm, I'm buddies, for example, with SpongeBob, you know, uh, Tom Kenny. Oh, yeah. And what do you mind? He's been friends with him. Yeah, he's been he's been a huge fan of ours. And like when when my when Bella was nine, I, I was away for her birthday and I and I met Tom Kenny that year at the Norton 25th anniversary. He was hosting it. And, you know, he to me and he was like, oh, my God, I love your music. And blah, blah, blah. I was like, and could you call my daughter on her birthday and tell her, like, I'm sorry that I couldn't be there. And he was like, oh, of course, of course. So, like, instead of just calling her, he recorded a three-minute message all about, like, how he wishes King Khan and Bloodshot Bill would come to Bikini Bottom. And, and, and then he was, like, <laughs> mentioning song titles and, like, you know, like, oh, little Mama and your sister Sabalu. And, you know, and, like, it, it was just the most endearing thing. And so we made this deal or uh, th- that um, I would, uh, whenever I had any, you know, cousins or, or, or nephews or friends of, you know, kids, anyone I wanted, I would call them up a month before their birthday and he would record these messages. And, uh, like we, I recorded one for, for Roki Erickson. Cause, uh, I heard that Roki was a real fan of, uh, SpongeBob and, you know, so, um, yeah, you know, it, it, I, I, I think that one day maybe, um, you know, some producer will want to, you know, get behind all the crazy ideas that I have, but I mean, this is what it's like to be bipolar. <laughs> it's like, uh, I didn't know I was, I didn't, I didn't know I was bipolar until, uh, it, it was like, uh, I played in the, uh, I think it was 2010. I got invited by Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson and, uh, and Hal Wilner. They had curated a festival in Australia. And a month before that, I was invited by Alejandro Yudorovsky to his house to like learn tarot. So that just those two meetings for me were, they completely like shattered my, my universe in some way, because I think of when I think of Alejandro Yudorovsky and, and Lou Reed in particular, I mean, Laurie Anderson in a way too. I remember seeing Laurie Anderson's home of the brave when I was 10 years old at, at home on a Sunday, it was on TV in the afternoon. And I remember watching it thinking it was like Sesame street, you know? So these people for me are like the, the reason that I am the creature that I am. So when I got, win that you know I, I met them and they were like oh you know we actually love all your music you know and and i was it, it kind of shocked me but it uh they treated me like such an equal and like and um and just like uh i didn't know pick up the pieces after that you know it, it shattered my universe because um i i admired and, and loved their music so much so uh it was that year that i had to go and check into a uh a mental hospital uh, as an as an outpatient because I wasn't a danger to like my family or myself. So you know, um, it's I remember leaving Yodorowsky's house uh, right like right as I got up to leave. He was he looked at me and he said, "You know, you're 33 this year. This is the year of your crucifixion." And I was like, "Oh." Okay. He's like, okay, see you later. <laughs> like, that, was, that was like the, the parting words, you know, as I left his, uh, his apartment in Paris and like, and he, he was right. Actually, it was my crucifixion because, um, I feel like, um, yeah, I had to, I had to, uh, rebuild, you know, it was like Icarus or whatever, you know, the, the wax and everything melted and I had to fall on the floor. But it, it was it was in a holy and beautiful way, and not like um, not something destructive, but actually something incredibly constructive. You know, so that also gave me like the faith in 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 always pursuing my visions, 
that that you know because when you when you are bipolar you have many visions you know and i i see bipolarity really as uh i mean as as a super it's almost like a supernatural power you know that can i was uh produced like seven different albums in my mind you know like have it all categorized you know like i you know if you come to my house there's it's just like chaos but i know where every every morsel uh of of you know thing, like things are you know what i mean um it, it was, it was, uh, it was at that point though, that I had to take two years off, you know, because, because I had to find the right medication for my, for my ailment, you know, and, and I was lucky because I actually sought help, you know, and that was, that's the thing that most of my friends who, who I've lost, you know, due to drug addiction or like uh, suicide and stuff, they didn't, they didn't go and get help, you know, and, and I had to get help because I, I had a family and, a, and, and they, and they supported me so much. I mean, even mighty Hannibal, you know, the R and B singer, uh, you know, he was my mentor. He was every week making sure that I was staying home and doing nothing. You know, he was like, you, you gotta just, stay, get your head together, you know, like, so I had the support system, you know, there was Andre Williams also, you know, like we would sit around and just talk about, uh, all the different medications that I was taking. And he was like, Oh yeah, did that. Oh, yeah, oh I like that one. Oh, did that one too. You know? So I was really lucky, you know, I, I had a very great support system of, um, of, sp I would say like almost like spiritual fathers, you know, I had many like Melvin Van Peebles was one of them too, you know, um, I, uh, working on this, uh, this invaders movie, you know, uh, I remember John B. Smith, uh, the, one of the founding members of the invaders, you know, we, we were, we were chatting and he was telling me about how, you know, when Dr. King, he was in the, in the meeting room with Dr. King hours before he got shot. And Dr. King's dream was that he was going to get the invaders who he was really impressed with their work. You know, they had like breakfast programs, they had, you know, uh, teaching kids history and, 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 you know, educating children and at the same time, you know, wanting to set up health clinics and all that stuff. So Dr. King was like, Hey, you guys are going to come with me and we're going to go to every black power group and we're going to teach them nonviolence and we're going to be the poor people's campaign and we're going to change America, you know? And, and imagine if that dream had, had come, come true, you know, the ghettos would not be ghettos. They would be, they would be beautiful. They would be like, you know, uni unified, you know, poor people, you know, taking care of each other, making sure there's enough food to feed everyone. You know, that was the, the beautiful thing about black power, you know, and, and every, I mean, the name, I guess, black power is kind of misleading because people often, you know, are, are comparing it to white power, which is completely ridiculous, you know, but like, um, I, 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 I am a black power advocate, you know, and I have been all my life since I read Malcolm X's autobiography when I was 12. And, you know, I also grew up, um, I grew up, uh, in fear, you know, my father was a, as a drug addict, was, it was a psychotic, uh, schizophrenic Indian man who terrorized me and my mother. You know, I mean, he pushed my mother down the stairs when I was in the, in, in her belly, you know, so I was under attack even before I was even born, you know, but I do remember, you know, minutes of, of my life until I and finally got the guts to like run away from home. I do remember being fearful of every step I took in the house, you know, and like when my father was away, it, we would be like celebrating when I was, uh, you know, like just, you know, freaking out and having fun with the kids and my, my mom and, and my grandma. But when my dad was around, it was like a funeral, you know? So I feel like this, this hostile environment that I grew up in, I mean, it's very different from, of course, uh, the black experience, but in, in a sense, it is kind of very similar because, you know, now you, you're afraid of your child going to a corner store. You know, or you're afraid of going to sleep because a cop might just come through the window and kill you, you know? So 
living with this kind of uh, this fear is is poisonous, you know. And like, and I know that my bipolarity completely comes from you know the abuse that I suffered as a child, you know. And and uh, but what I you know what I, that expression of like what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know, it, it resonates very much with me, you know, because all of the shit that my father put me through, you know, it got me to run away from home at a point. And when I was 17 or 18, you know, uh, when I would, didn't have a place to live, I would live on the Indian reservation, uh, with my best friend, um, Adam LeBourne, who was a Mohawk Indian. His brother was the chief of police. And I would like spend, you know, well, a week or two in transition, you know, going to finding a place wherever. But, uh, those, it was Adam LeBourne and also another a Mohawk friend, a, a best friend of mine. He was Jason Montour. He, who passed away, uh, you know, a few years back, the, the, he was an iron worker, you know, and he was eight years older than me. But when we played our shows, he was always in the audience and I felt no fear. I could do anything I wanted on stage because I had my crew that would back me up, you know? And so I, I pushed the envelope. I would get naked. I would, you know, <laughs> Going around with a rubber snake hanging out of my pants, like just like ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. But um, I feel like uh, I was I was lucky to learn to go beyond the boundaries that are set for you. You know. Yeah. What? What? Uh, just to back up a little, what drew you to the tarot cards? Because uh, I know that's a, been a big part of your life, and especially as of late, you've been doing a lot of. Uh, you did your black yes. power ca- cards, which are fucking great. Thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting. So what happened was that in 2001, I discovered Alejandro Jodorowsky's uh, Holy Mountain, San Sangre, and his films. And I remember going to uh, a friend of mine's house who was a drug dealer, and he just sat me down and gave me a bunch of hashish, and he was like, you got to watch this shit. You know, and I swear to God, my eye, my eyes were like peeling. You know, I, I, when I saw Holy Mountain, I, I, had, I had never experienced something like that. And the the perfection and like for me you know it's like the highest form of art you know it's it's got the Don Cherry soundtrack it's got you know this super hyper surrealistic you know giant sets you know it's it's got everything that 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 at that age that's what I needed to like uh, to realize what I wanted to realize you know and so uh, I started really getting into his philosophies and stuff and then uh, I had asked uh, Sophie Crum about whether she she had ever uh, met Yodorowsky and she was like, oh, well, I, I went to a tarot reading he does uh, in Paris. And I was like, what? Oh, he does tarot? And she was like, yeah, yeah, he does tarot. And like old ladies go line up at nine in the morning just to get a ticket. To, <laughs> maybe they get read by him and stuff, you know, like, so he, he really, you know, he's like this, he's an incredible uh, tarot reader. And so uh, that just sparked my interest. And uh, like a week later, I got an offer um from a Berlin uh, group of artists that were like, uh, sometimes in Berlin when there's a building that's going to be demolished, what they'll do is they'll let an artist take over for three days and they'll have this like crazy art exhibit that like, you know, people can just do anything they want in the building. They can tear down, they can build, you know, anything. So they had this huge apartment building and and they were like, Hey, we'd like to give you a room and you can do whatever you want. And ironically, I, I actually, I spray painted a giant black Panther flag and I put it up and this is, this is, this is 20 years before black power tarot. And I had this, this black Panther flag. I had a turban. I was burning incense. I looked completely ridiculous. <laughs> and, uh, and then someone gave me a deck of German tarot cards. So I didn't even know what the card said on it. 
So it, like, it was that hokey, right? So like people would come in and, and uh, I would make up my own reading, take eight cards, you know, and then I would look at the cards and then I would be like, not have any idea what the, I mean, you, you know, some symbols you can tell, but like, you know, some words, it, they were the Aleister Crowley deck, you know? And, and so like, I couldn't, I didn't know what unhappiness unha- or what, you know, wealth or blah, blah, blah. So I would have to ask someone in the next room to come in and translate the cards for me. <laughs> and then, so like, just imagine how hokey that is. Like when you're sitting next to a, a tarot reader and like, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't really read the cards <laughs> literally. But anyways, um, when in this process, though, I, very crazily enough, everything I was saying to these people about uh, about them, they were like, "Like, holy shit! Like, I don't know how you know that kind of stuff, but that's you. You're really spot on on this shit." And that that freaked me out. And I was just drinking, you know, I was just drinking, and like uh, people were just coming in, paying, you know, a, a buck or two, and the money was going to this art foundation. So I was just having a ball, you know. And then one girl came in, and she was American, and she was about 20, 22 or twenty three years old, and um, she got the death card in the middle. So I looked at it and I said, you know, okay, there's been a huge change in your life, but uh, because the the moon is there, uh, you see, uh, you get information from from the night, from from your dreams about how to cope with this. And when I said that, the girl's face just kind of uh, turned white, you know, and uh, and she was like, I, I I really can't believe you just said that. And I was like, well, what do you mean, you know? And then she's like, sister who was one year older than me died, uh, and she was she was on this trip for herself you know, and, and I'm finishing this trip for her. It's like, she comes to me and I explained to her all the stuff that's going on in the family. So she was like, I, and I was like, it's like, she's never died. I, I, I still talk to her all the time. So I just, now, now, now I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm any kind of mystic or like, or psychic or anything like that, but I believe that, um, at, at, when, when they, when I started getting this feeling, I, I started getting obsessing over tarot. Like I would, I would do tarot. Like I, I call my little brother up and he, and he'd be going to the dentist and I would be like, okay, let's do tarot. You know, <laughs> and just like I was doing it, I do it for Mickey mouse, you know, I do it for <laughs> like absolutely any, any, anything, you know? And, and what I was actually doing was I was actually understanding the cards in a very deep and uh, a way of, but the way that I work, you know, completely insane way of, of understanding it, you know? And I mean, if you, when I started reading Yodorowsky's deeper texts about tarot, you know, like he was sleeping with the, Oh, and seeing what dreams he would have, what influence, you know, he was visualizing the tarot, not as just cards, but like as in a three-dimensional, uh, three-dimensional world where all of these character people, you know, all the archetypes are standing there, you know, in, in, in the way they're standing in the, or sitting, you know? So, um, based on this like research, you know, um, I, uh, I, I got, yeah, I, I got a really good, understanding of it. And uh, I started to use it for what it's used for. It's used to help people find their path of illumination, you know, and what's important about the path of illumination is that you have to be a fool to start this path. You have to be completely free. You know, you have to be able to laugh at yourself, laugh at the world, laugh at the, at the person sitting in front of you and still eat on the same table, you know, because laughter. And that's why Richard Pryor is the fool in my deck. Because for me, Richard Pryor is uh, a god, as as you know, as that picture I sent you. <laughs> but uh, what Richard Pryor did was that he exercised the demons of racism, you know, of drug addiction, of like by calling himself a burnt match in front of thousands of people, you know, and 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 basically like showing, you know, this 
terrible thing that happened to him, you know, from his freebasing cocaine and, and burning his whole face, you know, turning that into a joke and then having your audience laugh at that joke of, of, of this becomes the trauma gets released, you know? And I think that's one of the biggest dangers in what's happening right now in comedy and the censorship of comedy is that you are taking the healing abilities of comedy away from the, from it's, it's, it's a medicine, you know, and it should be treated like a medicine and, and whoever is the comedian should be able to say anything he wants, you know, like the, even the worst thing he can say, and you can just say, Oh, Hey, that's his job of being comedian, challenging people, pushing your boundaries, pushing your buttons, you know, but throughout this whole thing is, experience yeah i feel like people have forgotten how to contextualize what what's being said like people aren't able to delineate something that's satirical to to and what's actually offensive it's 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 really gotten to a point where it's unbearable you know and i feel like you know people like george carlin would have problems now you know like people be like like, uh, it, it, it makes it, you know what, it, I'll tell you an example. I, I, I just finished a deck, a new deck, and it's all based on First Nations people, you know, and uh, from different tribes, from Canada, from, uh, you know, uh, the Inuk uh, up north. There's like uh, Buffy St. Marie is in it. I got blessings from all these different families, from people in the cards. So I was, this was a, a thing I was working on for many years, and I finally finished it, and it's, it's going to come out in a couple months. It's called the Dots and Feathers Tarot. You know, and I, dots and feathers, the ex expression, you know, is a racist expression. You know, it's like in Canada, when an ignorant person asks me, oh, are you a dot or a feather, Indy? It's like, I, I chose to call feather. I want to take away the negative connotation of that. And I want to actually express the fact that, I mean, I grew up uh, with brothers who are Mohawk. You know, I, I, I grew up like learning about the Mo Mohawk spirituality and stuff, you know, much, I, I know, you know, more about Mohawk spirituality than my own Indian spirituality in a lot of ways, you know, because I was born in Montreal, you know? And, um, so I was in doing this research. I found out about this, um, uh, this amazing, uh, person in the Lakota, uh, tribes. It was, he was called a Hayoka and a Hayoka is a thunder clown. Right. And, and what, what their role was that they were maybe dandy, you know, or a little bit effeminate and like they didn't belong on the battlefield and everyone knew that they didn't belong on the battlefield. So the, the Hayoka would stay with the women and children when the men would go out to battle. And when the men would come back and have these horrible PTSD experiences from battlefield, they would have these nightmares, you know, and they would see like, you know, a dog on fire, you know, pissing vinegar and, and a lake of uh, uh, whatever bees, uh, you know, and, and then, the, the he would the warrior would sit with the hayoka like on in a one-on-one -on -one session and then explain the dream and the hayoka would reenact the dream in front of him and then the warrior would laugh at it and and thus the trauma was taken away from it you know so this is an ancient practice that 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 is uh beneficial to human survival you know and and i think that I mean, obviously, with technology, we're getting away from our human instincts. But even, you know, back in the day, the, the, the First Nations in America, they knew exactly how much uh, forest to burn so that the whole fucking country doesn't catch on fire. You know, that, that, that's a practice that was being done and that should have been respected, you know, and should have been listened to, you know. So even if you look at New Orleans, you know, like uh, the new, uh, my, my, my new uh, Global Solidarity Forever or a foundation that I've, I've started with Malik Rahim, from the from uh, Algiers, New Orleans, you know the wisdom in this man is insurmountable.
in in, uh, in near New Orleans, you know, where that was like a swampland, basically that that the Indians and 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 African Americans would like go and hide and, and live on like freely and peacefully because white people were too afraid to go in the swamps, right? So like he comes from that age of 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 when like New Orleans, New Orleans life, like his his uncle was the bass player for Fast Domino, oh, you know, wow. and like yeah, like and that's that's another level of like when I started. I, I got to know Malik like a few years ago uh, with the Invaders film. We we did a showing in a, a Black Panther film festival in New Orleans, and then like John B for the Invaders and the director Pritchard and Juanita uh, Thornton from from the film too. She, they all went to Malik's house, and as soon as they that happened, I got a phone call from both John B and from from Pritchard, and they were like, "You got to hook up with this guy. Like, you need to talk to him." Uh, you know, and so then I started phoning him and we became so like super buddies, you know, and like and then, you know, he was telling me about, hey, man, I, it, it was funny. He was like he get he get like people coming to his house, like like, you know, a sound guy or something, you know, like a friend of his. And then the guy wouldn't believe that King Khan was his friend. So you'd have to like show him this or, or like on the phone. He'd be like, yeah, talk to this guy. He doesn't believe it's you. You know, like, <laughs> so. You know, so me and Malik, we, we we laughed so much on the phone, you know, and like, and and then when I told him about the Black Power Tarot, he was just completely uh, into it. And we did a, uh, the, our first uh, work together was that uh, during the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, I set up a uh, exhibition of the tarot in this really small hole in the wall, um, like um, DIY uh, UFO gallery. And so when I went to, you know, I went there and I, my, my mission was that like, I was hoping more Black Panthers would like come and check out the exhibition, but you know, Malik came and, and he was the most important person that to come. I mean, you know, we, we, he gave a lecture, you know, at, at the exhibit, you know, and people were just blown away and, um, and yeah, we became really, you know, really tight. And, and, and then when the COVID started happening, I was like, shit, I haven't talked to Malik in like a year or something. I call him up you know, and he was really sad, you know, he was really like, like he was like hundreds of his friends have died of COVID because they had diabetes and they were rationing insulin because they couldn't afford insulin and all this shit. And I'm like, this is avoidable. This is like insulin. There's enough insulin for the whole fucking world. You know, like there's no reason that you Americans have to charge a thousand bucks a month for insulin, you know, like in Canada and the UK, all these people, they get insulin for free, you know? So like when he told me this thing, I, I was just like, it really it really went straight to my heart and then i thought about it a long time and you know and i and i had this idea of doing this thing called the just insulin initiative you know and just as in justice but also just insulin because that's what it is it's just insulin you know and so uh when i got back to him you know i had all these ideas and i immediately realized that he really needed help i mean he, this guy hasn't had running water in his house for 15 years you know, like his, his, his house was where the, you know, the Black Panthers had their meetings in the seventies where common ground had their meeting in 2005, you know, saving 80,000 or more people in uh, Katrina, you know, and there's all in Malik's house and, and, and a house gets wrecked when there's thousands of volunteers trampling through it, you know, like day after day, you know, it, he was living in, in this, this, this like wreck of a, a house, you know, and, 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 and so I realized that it was like a slap in the face for me. And I was like, I got to get my shit together. And then the, the, you know, the fastest way I could do it was I just said, okay, all of the decks, I had like about two or 300 decks left uh, sitting in New York uh, to sell. And I said, okay, I'm going to charge a hundred bucks for a deck. 
And with the hundred bucks, you get a coloring book of the, of the tarot and you get a personal reading from me. I'll contact you and I'll read your cards, you know, and I charged a hundred bucks for that. And man, I raised 5,000 bucks in two weeks, you know, and I sent it directly to Malik and like, and then, you know, he was able to pay his back taxes and get the bank off his ass and like, and, and basically, you know, escape from uh, homelessness, you know, but the thing about Malik too, is that, uh, we just start talking every day. We talk every day almost, you know, and like, uh, and you know, when, when there's obviously stuff that we're planning, you know, and, but the, a lot of our conversations are just me like singing a song, you know, like, Hey, Malik, do you remember trick bag? Put me in a trick bag. Well, I saw you kissing Willis across the fence. You know, and we'll start singing together on the phone. And it's like, you know, I'm 50, I'm sorry. I'm 43 years old. He's like 72 or something. And I basically have like a best friend in, in Algiers, you know, who I have decided. And also the people that I work with in new Orleans, we've decided that we are going to take care of Malik for the rest of his life. And like, we are going to make sure that he is safe, you know, because this man, the wisdom and knowledge in his brain, he was the one who, who got all the volunteers to clean the storm drains out, you know, all over, uh, all over Algiers. And when hurricane Rita happened, there was no flooding in Algiers, you know, it's these simple things like, or like you go to the wetland and you plant tall grass, there's a special kind of tall grass that actually acts as a dampener and an absorber of the hurricanes. And it will actually even filter out a lot of the debris that gets thrown in a hurricane. This is all simple stuff that can be very easily done, you know, and, and at one point it was being done by, by uh, common ground, but then the FBI and the CIA infiltrated them and, you know, and, and got Malik uh, into trouble with this shit, you know, like, like they always do. You know, they have to, they have to interrupt something beautiful and destroy it, you know, and make sure that it never happens again. So, you know, I, I, I feel blessed that I, that I have a, a best friend out in, in New Orleans who I, who, who, who witnessed R and B music, you know, like, like when I, I remember for me, what changed my life was when I discovered all that fifties and sixties R and B from New Orleans, you know, uh, Earl King, uh, you know, um, uh, Professor Longhair, uh, I mean, Dr. John, you know, I love this stuff. And, and it, and it, 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 maybe it was because also I'm from Montreal, which is, you know, we have a French connection up there, you know, I can speak French. So then, you know, and the Acadians were the ones who went down there and taught, taught people French. So maybe it's a weird French gene that I have in me that's been like (laughs) transplanted or something, but I really feel that like the culture of New Orleans is really important and, and America, and if um, America, if, if, if New Orleans doesn't survive, then America can't survive, you know, because that it's because we have done something wrong, you know, and like, and we haven't listened to our elders, you know, and like, if, uh, anyway, so what, one thing that I've done, uh, which I'm very proud of is that I get Malik, uh, uh, I have a studio of my friends, John Henry and Heather from the band static static, and they're my partners in the global solidarity forever. And so I get Malik and Dennis kind, he's from veterans for peace. He's like Malik's right hand man. They go together every Sunday after Malik's church, uh, uh, you know, daily church or whatever, a Sunday church, Malik goes right there and we record like an hour or two of just him talking about anything that's on his mind, you know? And then I get, I get sent those recordings. And if you look on my band camp, there's a little part it's called Malik Rahim speaks volumes. And there's three, there's three songs right now, but it's basically just Malik t- t- telling us about what we could do to help the world, you know, and about global solidarity. And like, and he was the one who, who like, you know, I was talking to him and, and it's in these beautiful conversations that we figure out what the master plan is, you know? And, and he was like, 
I was like, Malik, what, what, do we, what do we need to do like internationally? Like, we have to do something. And he's like, global solidarity. We got to do a global solidarity movement that everyone from any part of the world can can tune in to support you. Maybe not financially, but just spirit wise, you know, just like. Um, and 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 if we have this system that's working, and then we're all you know uh, like tight, you know, it's like a hive. It's the hive mind, you know. And and ironically, the speaking of hive minds, Malik in his backyard had 10,000 bees in his backyard. Right. And he had never been bitten by a bee. And, and he told us like, uh, months ago, he was like, Hey guys, you know, I don't know. I got to do something about the bees in the backyard because I can't really be moving around that freely and stuff. Um, so then Heather, you know, goes on whatever, uh, on, 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 on the internet, anyone, you know, a beekeeper, we find this beekeeper who comes in he fucking vacuumed 10,000 bees into like these safely into these into these like uh, big buckets and carried all these bees through Malik's house <laughs> into his car. Right. And like, there was all this honeycomb and honey and all this stuff. And you got to think about it spiritually that like these bees lived in harmoniously w- with Malik because Malik is the, the, the queen bee in, in a strange way, in a, in, a, in a crazy way, you know, like, he he should be the 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 queen bee of, of of our of our world, you know, like because it, it takes a man like that who's been through death row, you know, and like you know he, he's been through everything, and like there's one quote that I love of his, he's like, as my brother used to always say, uh, when it's too tough for everybody else, it's just right for me. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a goddamn T-shirt. I bet I made a, I made a hip hop song out of it actually. Oh, did you? Um, is that on the yeah, bandcamp too? It's on the bandcamp too. I, I have this band. It's my dream band. It's called uh, the Infinite Ohm. And so right now it's Malik Rahim and the Infinite Ohm. And uh, it's basically I, I put jazz music uh, that I recorded uh, with uh, Malik speaking, and it's it's kind of a collective. I've got some I got some really hard hitters now in in this band. I, I got this guy named Jan Whitefield. Have you ever heard of him? No. Uh, there's a band called the Whitefield Brothers. And basically, they were the bands. They he he was the leader of the Poets of Rhythm, which was in the '90s. They were a German band from Munich that uh, that the guys from Daptone. Uh, before they were Daptone, there was uh, another name I can't remember. But that the the, the dudes from Daptone heard the Poets of Rhythm and were so impressed by their their sound of the recordings because it sounded like really authentic old analog soul. And they actually flew the brothers, the Whitefield brothers, into New York to like show them, you know, what, what techniques they were using. So, you know, Daptone wouldn't have been Daptone if it wasn't for like the Poets of Rhythm. And so I got Jan Whitefield. Um, he's 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 joined the band, and like uh, um, I, got, I even got a guy in Australia uh, from this band, Orb uh, Zach. You know, it, I, it's basically a family, you know, as a collective family, um, and. That's how I've always worked too. I guess in a way I have been working in the hive mind mentality, you know, but um, for me, I feel like I have a high bar of what I expect from people artistically. And my, my theory is something that I've learned uh, that if art doesn't mutate you, then it's, it doesn't work, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, from the first listen to a song, you'll know if it changes your biology you know, you, you'll, you'll have experienced something that is very fundamentally, uh, like, uh, uh, not necessarily life-changing, but, uh, uh, you know, you, you think differently from now on because you've heard this song, you know? And I, I know for a fact that like, for example, the music of Jay Retard or like the Black Lips, you know, when I first heard them 
I, that was what happened. It was anthems. It was, it was the lyrics, the music, the everything, the, the feeling. It, for me, it felt like the soul of youth, the youth in, in, in America is screaming, you know, and, and the black lips are the ones who are the, the antenna that are, that are, you know, right, right there, like understanding that wave of frustration and, and celebration. So uh, the same with art, you know, like if I see a painting, like, you know, if you look at anything by Hieronymus Bosch, I'm, I am changed after anything that I see of him, you know, or like Dali uh, to some extent and Joe Coleman, you know, a very great modern example. Every painting I've seen of Joe Coleman has completely changed my brave wa- brainwaves, you know? And uh, I guess the first thing that happened to me with that was discovering Burroughs when I was like 14, you know, I read Naked Lunch and I was never the same. You, you have a recording that on your band camp of, did because I looked at the timeline, I you would have you didn't do that with Burroughs, did you? Because you would have had to been. No, I did it with Hal Wilner. Hal Wilner was like uh, one of Burroughs' best friends, and he produced all his records. And after I got really, uh, I met Hal through Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson. He produced their stuff too, and we just got really close. And and uh, after I think it was the year after Lou had passed, you know, Hal wrote me and he was like, "Hey man, you know, I just I have this unfinished Burroughs album that I never." that I want to finish. I want you to finish it. Like do whatever you want, check your email. They're all there, you know? And he sent me these like 12 tracks of Burroughs. And uh, what was amazing too, is that some of the tracks, like maybe three or four of them had uh, like uh, um, some really heavy hitters playing like Tony share on uh, playing bass, uh, like dudes from uh, like the, Oh God, I can't remember. I can't remember names right now, but like the John Zorn kind of community of, of like a crazy New York dudes. So, um, uh, yeah. And then how he just said, do whatever I want, you know? So like I, I produced that album with him and, uh, it was very special for me because it was the unspeakable parts of naked lunch. And it was like really the nitty gritty, nasty shit in naked lunch, you know? And I, I still claim that this might be the most offensive record that has ever been <laughs> recorded because uh, honestly, you, you hear it, you hear it in Burroughs voice. Cause he's laughing and he's doing like uh, old lady voices like, Oh, aren't you fucked her in the brain? And like, like, you know, just like it's, it's, it's really, really highly offensive stuff. And, um, actually one funny story is that, uh, when I, I, I got the, uh, I had this vision for the artwork. I wanted Burroughs like a tarot card, uh, like, like the car, the car, of the devil standing on like a pile of dead junkies holding a giant syringe, you know, and like having a cat, his, his orange cat, you know, with him. So, um, my artist that I work with all the time, Michael Eaton, who also, uh, did the ter- black power terror with me. Um, I had this idea of having, because, you know, the whole Nambla thing with the beats. Uh, so I had two naked, uh, Moroccan boys, uh, standing next to him. Right. And one of the boys had an erection. Right. And so like I was, it was it, okay. It was just a vision, you know, and he drew it. And then, uh, everyone, everyone like on our side, like, uh, loved it. Like James Grauholds, who was like, uh, the, the manager of Burroughs estate was totally into it as Hal too. And we were like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. This is so offensive as an album. Like, why not have an incredibly offensive cover? But then, you know, there were some people, musicians who were involved who like really got upset and stuff. And, and to be honest, I'm really happy that it got changed or like they forced me to change it because I put loincloths on the, on the kids and I, I made them leopard boys instead of actual boys. 
So like, you know, we tweaked it in a really psychedelic, uh, <laughs> proper, proper way. But it, the, the, I mean, it's still so funny that like to get, to get, uh, letters from an album, you know, musicians who work on an album <laughs> that is talking about bestiality is talking about torture is talking about the, like, you know, like, like really rough sex, you know, and then, they're like complaining about the fact that there's two naked boys on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, uh, I, I will say though, it it makes me proud that, that Hal like totally was on right about this and, and willing to like fight for it. And, and, but then, you know, I'm a dad, you know, and like, I know that, that certain things that may be amusing to me for a moment, could detrimentally harm my entire existence, you know, especially now you see what's happening with cancel culture and shit like that, you know, like people are just under the gun, you know, for making a a joke on Twitter or something, you lose a whole, you know, a whole career, you know? So I, I realized actually recently, uh, my new philosophy is shut the fuck up for peace and tranquility. (laughs) And, and, and I, and I go by that, I'm not, I'm not doing that now though because I've been I've been ranting and raving like a lunatic. Oh uh, no, I love it. It shows not about me, man. It's about you. Hey, how did you get involved with Sun, the Sun Ra Orchestra? Because I was I, a couple of those guys this played is, on your new album, right? Yeah, Marsh Marshall, the grand the grand Marshall played on it, and and so did uh, Noel Scott. And so what happened was that in 2005, this is uh, quite an amusing t- story. Um, in 2005, I was uh, in uh, Toronto. No, 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 sorry, in, in Montreal, my hometown. And uh, it was the first time that the the, uh, um, the Shrines got invited to do a small Canadian tour. It was the first time we were in North America. So, you know, we were, like, doing a really DIY style, and I was just getting people to stay at my friends' houses. You know, there was no hotels and all that kind of shit. We were staying with my family and stuff. And so, lo and behold, we had a day off, and I'm, like, walking on the street in front of my sister's uh, apartment, and I, I run into the girl that I, that I lost my virginity with, right? <laughs> I, when I, I was I was a late bloomer, I was like seventeen, but I hadn't seen her in years, and I was just like, "Holy shit! Like, what what are you doing here?" You know? And she's like, "Oh, actually, I have a date with uh with one of the guys from the Sun Ra Orchestra," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> you know, I had no idea they were even in town, and I was and, and like I I had been telling you know I mean for just a little backstory, uh, when I moved to Germany, I was tw- I was twenty two. And um, I, uh, it, there was a painter that was leaving Germany to go back to America, and he gave me all these videotapes of Sun Ra, like different documentaries and all these like spoken word speeches that he had done in different universities. So I had this like huge wealth of Sun Ra stuff, and and then I started listening to it all the time. And that's actually how I realized that you know my wife was the one for me to marry was because we would sit and smoke weed and and watch six or seven hours of Sun Ra videotapes and she would just be like like you know as captivated as I was and I was like man if this woman can watch six hours of Sun Ra I think I could probably spend eternity with her you know <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so Sun Ra Sun Ra made me realize who my soulmate was you know and um, anyway so so when when um, yeah, so when my 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 friend that, that I lost my virginity to, she's like, I'm, I have a date with Sunrise. I was I was like, okay, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to be that guy. I'm gonna be the third wheel on this shit, you know. And she's like, <laughs> okay, okay. So so I go with her to the bar, and it turns out that uh, there was two or three guys from the Sunrise Orchestra. It was uh, Dave Davies, Cecil, and uh, uh, and Hotep, I think. 
the guitar player. And so I, I just we just got to know each other, and uh, they, they were they were all uh, they were all they had all joined uh, the orchestra. They were the younger members of their. When I say younger, I mean they were probably in their like forties, and I was in you know my early twenties. But it just freaked me out because I was I was telling them that like Sun Ra's music completely changed my life, and that's why I decided to do the shrines, and I, that's just why I decided to get this big soul orchestra kind of situation happening and make it psychedelic and mix it with like punk and 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 you know all sorts of different types of inspirations influences. So, um, so yeah, we became really friendly and then they were like, Hey, we're going to Toronto tomorrow and we're going to be there for three days. And I was like, Oh my God, we're going to play at a, a bar for three days also in Toronto. Uh, but our, we, we, we played the late night shift. We played like after midnight and they, they did the early shift from like uh, seven, uh, they were doing a dinner theater. And so they would so, like members of the orchestra would come and, and they would get on stage with us at, uh, at our gig. And, uh, I actually needed a place to stay because I had kind of run out of my friends. So I just asked them, I was like, Hey, can I sleep on the couch in the, in the, <laughs> in, the in the condo that you guys are, are staying at? They were like, yeah, of course. So I would be like partying all night until like three in the morning. I'd, and then I'd be wasted and I'd go to the Sun Ra condominium, uh, and then I would like knock on the door at like morning and like, you know, the like, 70 year old member of Sun Ra Orchestra would be like, who is it? I'm like, it's King Khan. <laughs> They're like, oh God, come on in, come on in, come on in. You know, so I would like sleep on the couch. So the one night um, I'm sleeping on the couch and I, I get up at like really early in the morning, like, I don't know, eight in the morning just to go to the bathroom. And as I'm walking to go take a whiz, uh, I see that there is yellow smoke billowing out of one of the doors. You know, and I'm, I'm talking about a lot of smoke. I thought it, like, it's something was on fire in there, right? So I was like, holy fuck. So I like, you know, I opened the door and then Yaya El-Majid, uh, God rest his soul, he, he just he just left the planet recently. But Yaya was sitting on the, uh, on the, on his bed uh, and on the, on the desk next to it, on the, on the night table, there was two empty cans of sardines on top of each other and a rock of mirror you know, and, and frankincense, and it was burning like a volcano. And this smoke, this yellow smoke was just billowing and filled the entire air of the whole thing. And he's sitting on the bed with a Chinese harp, a clay Chinese harp, like, you know, plucking this thing. And he's got this CD player playing Tuvin throat singing from from the Tuvins, you know? Like, <laughs> and he's just like, you know, and I walk in the room and he's like, he's like, gone, you know, so I'm down. And then Yaya just goes on in this like hour and a half, like stream of consciousness rap about like what he learned about discipline from Sun Ra, how uh, being a Muslim changed him and, and also taught him more discipline, how, uh, how it was traveling all over the world with the orchestra going to living with like an indigenous tribe of two Vince throat singers, you know, like who, who lived high up in the, um, in a, in a mountain, in the mountains where there was a lake where there was no fish when they, when they, when they started living there like hundreds of years ago and they introduced a fish into that lake and they've been eating that fish every day for like hundreds of years, you know? So really amazing, amazing stories and, 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 and theories. And like, and I feel like 
I mean, Yaya was one of the legacy members of the orchestra too. He was there with John Gilmore. He was there. Actually, he actually burnt down uh, John Gilmore's uh, room <laughs> in the Sun Ra house with the same contraption of fucking, uh, <laughs> it, it was like his, his like go-to uh, spiritual like volcano of smoke. <clears throat> and um, so, um, yeah, so I feel like I, I got really, really close right, like right from the get go when I, when I met them, you know, and, and then when Marshall met me, you know, um, he looked at me and he, and he smiled and he, cause I was, I was in the newspaper, uh, on the Toronto, uh, Toronto sun and I was on the cover. And then in the article, I was saying that the sun orchestra was the biggest influence in my life on musically. Cause I felt like I found spirituality through their music. Like their music is like prayer to me just like Alice Coltrane also, but like Sun Ra especially. And so when Marshall had read the article, he looked at me and then he looked at me and just went, I know about you. I read about you in the paper, you know? And then he gave me a hug and I was just like, Oh my God. Like I was like, I'd been like blessed, you know? So, so I, I was like tight with them from the beginning. And then somewhere down the line, we, you know, we'd play festivals together, you know, we'd run into each other here and there, you know, and uh, I wrote a poem called We the People of the Myths. And uh, Noel, uh, Noel Scott, he was also a legacy member. He was the one with when, when Sun Ra was there too. Noel called me up when he was in Berlin, you know, and uh, we were hanging out and I told him, yeah, I wrote this poem and I'd love to show it to, to you. And so he, lo- he immediately went to Marshall's room and like I read the poem to him and then they had their meeting and then they were like, okay, we can do this with discipline number 27. You, co- you come on, you know, and, and it's, it'll, it'll be great. So then I'm like, oh my God, now I'm going to on stage with them and they're going to, I'm going to recite a poem, my poem. So uh, shortly before we were on stage, I, I dressed up really like kind of, I see I had this like, this kind of German uh, pimp hat kind of it was like a, like this uh, hunter's cap with a big pheasant feather. And I, you know, I had a sparkly, sparkly uh, thing that I used to wear with the shrines. So I, I come to the show for soundcheck and then uh, Danny, Tom, D- Danny Ray Thompson, he looks at me, he's like, so uh, what are you going to wear on stage? <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, what I'm wearing now? <laughs> like, he was like, no, no, no. He's like, you got to get suited up. You got to get suited up. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. And Danny Ray, I had a really great relationship too also because when I gave them the tarot cards, Danny Ray was like, any time that whenever I'd, I'd go see them at a show or something and Danny would spot me, he would just grab me and be like, okay, read my cards now. You know, even it could be on the street. Like he'd be like, you know, he'd be just like, throw the cards you know, on, the, on the concrete and let's read the cards now, you know, like, so he, he was really into the tarot and like, and, and also very funny and, 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 um, just so they're all just wonderful people, you know. And one of the one of the beautiful things I remember um, was when before going on stage. Well, f- sorry, Danny Danny Thompson would give me his extra spacesuit to wear on stage, you know. So his, his hat and his sparkles and stuff. And um, before we we all went on stage, then like Danny would lead a prayer in the and he for like giving us the, the, the opportunity to, to play our music and to spread our love and, and joy throughout the world. And it was such a beautiful moment to hold hands with the whole orchestra like this, you know, and, and, uh, and then finally be a part of the family, you know? And, and so we performed this a couple of times, um, you know, once in Utrecht, once in, once in Berlin. And, um, and then, I was um, I'd been contacted by uh, by the son of Paul Simon uh, Harper Simon, right? And uh, he's a musician as well. And so he um, was he wanted to do something with the orchestra, 
So I kind of, I, 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 uh, I don't remember if it was me or if it was Hal that hooked him up with Marshall, but anyway, they got hooked up and Harper asked me to like, uh, sing on this track that they had done. He had, he had co-written with Marshall. And so it was this long track and I was like, Oh man, this is perfect for my poem. Actually, Ben, you know, Marshall and everyone, I've already performed it with them. So, and, and, you know, the poem fit exactly in the, in the song. Did I send that to you? Yes, I listened to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean for me like that poem, you know, I think that really captures like um uh, uh, a very essential thing that the the orchestra and I feel like free jazz uh, was such a, a part of black power revolution, you know, and and people don't even realize, you know. But there is a way, a spiritual way that I explained this, you know, and I, and it comes from the way diamonds are made, right? You see like diamond is a, is a coal, is a piece of coal, right? A dark black piece of coal. And when you have immense pressure from around the, around it, you know, it squeezes it so crazily hard that it becomes this crystalline, you know, uh, form of a diamond that is like, uh, cannot be replicated, you know? And I feel that free jazz is exactly that. It's like, you know, Albert Eiler, Alice Coltrane, uh, like uh, all these people, these were black people living in times where they were hunted. They were, they were, they were, you know, by police, by the government, by everyone, you know, by promoters, by the entertainment industry. All these people were just constantly, you know, bashing their, their shit. And so there was so much sure that, of course, the music that they created was this crystal diamond, you know, this like this, this, this gem that could never be uh, replicated, you know? And I feel like, um, that yeah that, that that's a very essential quality to to that music and 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 especially now man it's like that's the music we got to listen to all every day all the time you know like listen to Alice Coltrane listen to Roland Marchand Car uh Kirk, you know like inflatable tear you know that that piece of music is 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 a salve you know it it, it it's it's a holy holy thing that will that will save us uh, and uh, to uh, finally, like to wrap it, I want to talk about your new album because I've listened to I listened to all of it because you sent it to me, and it's just Great. fucking incredible. <laughs> I mean, when I saw oh, that, man, thank- I lost my mind when I saw that you were doing a jazz album, and I was like, it, to me, I was like, oh, that makes sense. This is clearly the next progression in this man's art. Yeah, th- thank you for saying <laughs> that because it's it's true. Like uh, one one thing you know that that I learned about from the orchestra was that and son Robert's preaching this thing that you follow the music that's inside of you. Right. And not what's prescribed to you, you know, like nowadays pop music just makes, celebrates mediocrity. You know, there's no, there's no uh, exploration, you know? And so for me, I, uh, when the COVID thing happened, uh, there was a very personal uh, track, like a thing that happened between my, my wife got, uh, had to get an operation. Uh, for and get cancer removed, you know, and um, you know we had never no, nothing like this had ever happened in, in our family, and so when luckily it was right before the COVID thing, but, but then we were waiting six months to get you know results on like uh, oh shit, do you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we were we were waiting to get results, um, and it was during this period that I started recording uh, the jazz album, and I would start every song usually with uh, uh, my a ba- my bass playing, just like. You know, there was no click. There was nothing like that. I would just play bass and I would structure these songs according to, to I would play two bass lines 
it's pretty much. And then I would send it to the other musicians. And um, and the way I like to work is that when I send stuff to other musicians to to work with, sometimes I'll give them a guide idea, you know, of maybe a song reference or something like that. But I never tell them what to do because I I like the the feeling of like when you share a piece of music that's personal like this. I want them to be giving their maximum. You know, and and once they give you their maximum, then you can whittle down stuff if you if you feel that it is you know. But honestly, I didn't have to whittle down anything for any any of these tracks. That like the people that recorded it, you know, the the guys from Colexico, even the orchestra, you know, I just sent it to them, and like the day after it was done, and they would send it back, and so it really stayed true to the essence of like the jazz should be. So it was recorded in not in the same location because of COVID. No, no, no. I, I did the bass and some percussion stuff uh, at my house uh, in Berlin. Um, the, the, the orchestra parts were recorded in Sun Ra's house in Philadelphia with the old microphones of Marshall. Wow. And uh, yeah. And uh, you know what's funny is that on the night that, uh, that they recorded the Wait Till the Stars uh, Burn, the first song on the album, um, at the same time, this rap, the singer Rihanna, you know, the pop singer, mm-hmm. She, uh, the same night that they were recording, she posted a song that I wrote with my daughter when she was five or six years old. Uh, it was, a, it was like a, it's, it's a, you know, it's like a kid's song, you know, and she posted the song without our permission, you know, without calling my publishing, all this stuff. And I mean, this song was actually even in a cartoon network, uh, uh, TV show called, uh, Clarence. So it, it's not like she could have just she could have found out where this song came from, but instead she posted it and she made a, she made a commercial for her new sunglasses. And how funny is it that I'm recording with the sun orchestra for the first time in my life. Rihanna advertises sunglasses with the, with the fucking song that I, that I wrote, you know, like it was, I mean, for, for me, like those are the two polar opposites of music, like Sun Ra and Rihanna, you know, and like some, somehow they, they, they met up or, or maybe it's a joke that Sun Ra was just like, you know, thought he'd, he'd like pull a fast one on me and get Rihanna to like, you know, illegally steal one of my songs. But anyways, um, uh, yeah. So, so, and there was parts that were recorded in Leipzig, uh, because that's, that's where one of the trumpet players is. And, um, uh, and, and, and one of the guys from Arizona, uh, um, John Curventino from, from Calexico, he did his drum parts and you know, what's cool is because, uh, I really got to, um, I had this vision going into this album that like I had two drummers that I wanted to work with. And one of them was in Italy. And so I tried to do a stereo panning drum thing where, uh, John Convertino was kind of doing more of a thunder drum, which was like, he had this very nice, like timpani kind of like rolling thunder, you know, and he had marimbas and, and castanets. So I had him panned to the one side and I had my other drummer who was more of like a, like a straight up, like kind of like R and B uh, drummer, you know, like, um, uh, what should we call it? Uh, a bit like, a, like the art ensemble of Chicago, uh, kind of, yeah. So I had this, like, I've, I've, I've always had this vision of like how to separate sounds in very much like using a lot of stereo panning. I mean, it's not like it's, I'm the first person to do this, but like, but I had this idea and like, for example, um, I, on, the, on the song theme, theme of Yaya, um, because of that first experience that I had with him um, and, and his harp, so I thought it would be like a cool thing as a tribute to him that I had, I recorded, I recorded four harps and I put them in a circular pattern, like a flower pan left to right, you know? And so that, that's what made that song very like, kind of almost like a, 
luscious jungle of 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 harp. And um, you know, one thing I'm really I really uh, am very uh, thankful for is that um, before Yaya passed recently, uh, I had uh, he had called me. And we got back in touch, and uh, and he wanted to thank. He just thanked me for the song that I wrote for him, and uh, you know when I, when I wrote it, it wasn't a requiem; it was a tribute to him, you know. And uh, when he called me, he was like, uh, he was like, you know, I, I, this song is really beautiful, and I, and, I, and I, I'm really proud of you, and like and like you know, and so, um, yeah. And then a few, you know, a few weeks later, he had he had passed, you know. And actually, you know, he sent me his last transmission, which is him at a bus station. Right. And he just recorded it on his cell phone uh, and he's, it's a 12 minute uh, song. And it's like he starts off by playing this really like uh, crazy kind of Indian or African flute or, or like a recorder kind of thing. And then he, he does that for like three minutes and then he plays uh, a, a real flute like a, uh, and then he plays saxophone and he sent me this recording. And like you can hear the buses going by and stuff and he's wearing this crazy hat and I'll, I'll send it to you. Cause it's okay. like, uh, it's, it, it's, I actually, I, I put it, I, I recorded it and I, and I put music to, to it even. So, um, just because when I found out he passed, it really, uh, it really broke my heart because one of the things he was trying to do, like he was struggling with prostate, prostate cancer for quite a while. And, um, and I knew that it, that was one of the main reasons that he had to stop playing in the orchestra, you know, and he had, uh, he had moved back to Maryland, you know, or something. And like, he kind of repaired his relationship, I think with his family and his, and his, uh, and his sons and stuff. So, um, when he passed the, like the, my first instinct was, well, sorry, before he passed, when he's talking to me, he was really kind of frustrated with the COVID thing. And he was, he just said that he wanted to just take a bus and go to, uh, the Sun Ra house and like, just play with Marshall and get them to record some ideas that he had, uh, on in his head, you know, and, uh, but he was just afraid, you know, that he didn't want to spread the COVID to them. And, uh, so there was like a lot of frustration and he was asking me how I did it, you know, and, and, and how I got to like get, get them to record and stuff like that. And, um, and, you know, he had, he had gone, he had a stroke and stuff too. So it was like, he, he was telling me that he was like, I, I don't know if I can even play, uh, like the things that I've been writing, you know, and I want to get, I want to get Noel and, and the rest of the guys to like play those parts. And so it was his really kind of like his last dying dream to like do a recording with the rest of the orchestra. So um, what I'm trying to do now, I mean, it's, it's become difficult, but I've actually recorded that transmission and I put some music onto it uh, already. And then eventually, you know, uh, I would like to ask, um, like Marshall and Noel to see if they would want to play on it. But, you know, at the same time, it's a very sensitive issue. You know, it's like, there's so much insanity in the world right now, you know, that, uh, you got to pick your battles, you know? And I feel like, uh, I feel like my relationship with, with Yaya was really, uh, it, it, the, it went full circle when, when he heard the tribute that I did for him and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, I feel like, uh, yeah, I feel like I, 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 you know, I gave him, uh, uh, I gave him the respect and the admiration that he deserved, and I don't think a, a lot of uh, people in 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 Washington D.C. and stuff they know like Yaya is kind of like a mystical character that I know a lot of like uh, younger musicians who you know like Luke Riley, uh, not uh, sorry, uh, oh fuck, I'm forgetting his last Luke Stewart, Luke Stewart, the bass player, he played with them a bunch, you know, and like he plays with. Uh, 
Moore mother and stuff. And uh, so there was, there, you know, Yaya had quite a reputation of being this like, you know, really eccentric, amazing musician. But when I show you this last transmission, man, you'll hear it, man. He's, he still got it, you know, like, even though he thought his body was failing, man, it wasn't, you know, like you can hear him when he, the way he played, I mean, you can, you can hear the John Gilmore, like, like he learned so much from John Gilmore, you know, and like, and, and, uh, and John Gilmore from, you know, from John Coltrane, like actually it's Coltrane's birthday today. Even, oh, is it? You know? Yeah. Oh, cool. And it's funny because I, I, I just, I just <laughs> bought a record of, uh, it's, it's called this, the Sun Rock Quartet and it's with Michael Ray, um, John Gilmore, Sun Ron Piano and Organ, I think, and uh, um, oh God, I, I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. But um, yeah, I walked in, and the, and the first song they do is my favorite things, and I didn't even realize that it was it was John Coltrane's birthday. But I was listening to John Gilmore play <laughs> John Coltrane, which is pretty fucking badass, you know. Like, <laughs> uh, when do, uh, when does the new album come out? Oh, Devil's Night, October thirtieth. Awesome, great. Yeah, there's gonna be. There, I just, I just want to make sure that every album when it when it's first played, that there's a burning bag of dog shit in in, in, <laughs> you know, in front of in front of the door. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, man. My pleasure, and and thank you for doing what you do. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Remember to rate and review it. And if you like, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer, or Conversations with Dwyer. Also, listen to my friend's podcast, Hunk by Mike Bridenstine and Kill Gallon's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you again. <laughs>